Every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I am your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Natasha Miller. Her path is unlike anything you've heard before. She was forced out of her home by a relationship with her mother and taken to a youth shelter on Christmas night, overcoming all of that and becoming a wildly successful business owner. She's now the CEO of a multi-million dollar company called Entire Productions. She's also an author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Relentless Homeless Teen to Achieving the Entrepreneur Dream, which came out last March. Natasha, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Brian. Awesome. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. So now we have a bit of a time difference here since I'm in Delaware and you're in San Francisco. And you know, it's not appropriate really for you to, to be drinking. So I'm going to be doing <laughs> the heavy lifting here. Uh, I'm going to be giving a sample to All Green Everything by Other Half Brewing. So we'll give it a review at the end. Okay. Uh, thanks again for joining me. And well, first, let's tell me a little bit about your company and what you do. Sure. Entire Productions is an event and entertainment production company, and our clients are Google and Salesforce and Apple and LinkedIn and all of the big tech companies that live in San Francisco, a lot of startups that are venture funded, and we've been in business for over 20 years. Wow. it's been a blast. <laughs> I bet. So that's interesting. So if Google, for instance, wants to um, create a, an event for their people, yep. hire you and you design it from start to finish? We do. We also um, provide entertainment of every genre and every discipline from local to headline talent to other uh, event productions. So sometimes we're planning the whole thing from A to Z. Sometimes we're just bringing in the talent. Oh, wow. That's really cool. That, that seems like a fun business to be involved in. I mean, it's a blast. The conversations and the words that come out, out of our mouths are somewhat ridiculous. Like, <laughs> you know, the, the woman in the lobster outfit costume is pregnant. She won't let anyone borrow her uh, costume or, you know, <laughs> Is our snake charmer back in town or, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Wonderful. What's the craziest thing that you've ever put into an event? Like if you look back and go, I can't believe we actually did that. Oh, you know, this is funny. This just actually, it was for a Google event and it was this guy who, um, I mean, it's kind of gross, but he's into torture devices. So he would lay on a bed of nails and he would like put a nail down through his nose, like just weird (laughs) things. Um, That's probably one of the weirdest. We had a woman that was balancing and walking on champagne bottles in stiletto heels. Wow. I mean, don't get me started. A lot of this is on the website, entireproductions.com. The photos and the videos are mind blowing. That has to be pretty crazy. I mean, we're in a wild kind of city, right? For sure. Yeah. We, We get away with a lot of potentially naughty um, adjacent things. <laughs> yeah. Things right up, right up against the line. 
I, yeah. I always wonder when someone is walking on champagne bottles and stilettos, how they find out that they have that talent. But that's a that's a different story for a different day. Yeah, I'm not even sure I want to know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, let's talk quickly about your upbringing and everything that you've had to overcome. You can't really write this. It sort of seems like a movie script almost. So talk a little bit about how that shaped you and, and your, you know, how, how you wrote your book and all that. Yes. So growing up in the mid 80s, I think this is an important part to really think about growing up in the mid 80s in the Midwest. There was no Oprah, right. right? There wasn't a lot of access to hearing about other people's experiences. So mm-hmm. if you were experiencing something challenging, there wasn't a whole lot of places to turn. Right. So as a young girl being mistreated uh, by my mother and honestly, my dad not intervening, mm-hmm. he wasn't inflicting the damage on me, but you know, wasn't I helping, wasn't helping, um, you know, it was, it was horrific. It was yeah. horrific and no one was coming to save me. And I was always waiting, yearning, begging, wanting someone to see me as valuable enough to want to save me. Sure. And, you know, people come in and out of your lives and give you opportunities, but nobody's going to, I mean, even today, no one's going to come and save someone. Right. For the most part. Um, so yes, my, I was, you know, verbally, sometimes physically, emotionally abused, told I was, I mean, this is in the book, but my mother had said to me pretty much every day, either with words and actions or just emotionally, I hate you. Oh, I want to kill you. Then I'd rather go to jail than have to look at you. Oh my God. That shapes a person's whole person. Especially in those formative years. Right. And it all came to a head when I was 16 on Christmas day. And, you know, she had threatened to kill me many, 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 many times. But for some reason, this occasion, I felt like, oh God, it could actually happen. Oh, wow. So that combined with um, some, I mean, I was older, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> some courage and bravery. I, I called 911. Yeah. Now you'll read in the book. The police came, but they left me there because I wasn't gushing with blood and I didn't have broken bones. And those were the parameters in which the authorities could come in and and help someone. Unfortunately, I think that's changed. I sure hope so. Since then. Um, But they gave my dad a card that said, if you don't think she's safe here, you can take her to the youth shelter. So I packed a hefty garbage bag full of whatever I could grab and ended up staying there for some time. And I can't recall how long, but when there was talk of foster care uh, being you know, implemented, I was like, no way. I was studying as a classical violinist. I was very serious about that talent and that um, opportunity I had. So I ended up uh, unofficially emancipated oh my and God. have lived on my own since then. So- Obviously, there's a lot to unpack there that, you know, when you're 16, you know, just thinking back when I was, well, I was 16, you're so not emotionally equipped to handle the severity of that situation, right? How were you able to get not only through that, but thrive at the other end? I mean, I had this engine burning inside of me and I did have a musical talent, right? I think, you know, I wasn't like off the charts prodigy, but for little Des Moines, Iowa, I was 
considered somewhat of a prodigy. Yeah. Um, and I had really, honestly, a very loving high school boyfriend wow. who helped me through. I mean, God, he, he had no idea what he was getting into. Right. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't even really, um, you know, he was a great help and my orchestra conductor, Diane Pope was an amazing help, uh, not to get me out of the homelessness, but to, to really bolster my confidence and, and show me opportunities. Yeah. So I did not ever think that I would get to where I am today. It wasn't accessible to me. This life I have now wasn't in the cards. I mean, I wanted to be a, a professional performing artist. Yeah. And I thought I had a shot at, you know, living, scraping by in New York and maybe being on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Now that's a big deal, right? but it's far from what I have now. And for me and my lifestyle, much better. No doubt. No doubt. So you emancipate, where do you go? Yeah. Like, wh- You go. So the first place I went to was my grandmother's home for a short period of time. And I'd like to introduce some ironies here in the story. Um, Number one, what was my dad's job at this time? He worked for the city of Des Moines for the homeless coalition. Oh, wow. What was his mother's claim to fame? My grandmother, she wrote self-help books for family communications. There's literally a book that she published called help your child for life. And, um, gosh, I can't remember the other books. She wrote seven of them. Oh my God. You can't make that up. You can't. And here's the deal. It didn't occur to me back then how ironic and weird this whole thing was. Yeah. That is so I didn't have time to to draw those lines. So, um, I ended up in a two bedroom basement apartment in Des Moines uh, surrounded by adults, right? Adults and elderly people. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, my landlord at the time was like smoking bongs all day. And, you know, the, I was working full time at a, at a restaurant as a hostess because I was too young to serve right. dinner because yeah. of, the, you know, the age of uh, serving alcohol. So I just, oh man, I made my way through. And again, I didn't know at that time that I would definitely make it. But right. I knew at that time that I definitely wanted to, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to fall into, I didn't want to be a career restaurant worker. Yep. I wanted to be a performance artist and I, I was, I was good enough and I practiced Yeah. I really, really honed in laser focused. I was very disciplined. Um, you know, when you play classical violin and you're sitting with a, a college professor at the age of how old was I 13 when I started Um, you practice sometimes six to eight hours a day. Right. And you skip school to practice, Practice. make sure that you're in good shape for that next lesson. Wow. That's what I did. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about your transition to to being a, you know, a a professional violinist and and jazz vocalist. So Mm -hmm. how does that come to be and how, how, how did that career end up? So I started playing professionally, just meaning that someone was going to pay me to play. Yeah. Right. It wasn't a full-time job. Sure. My first gig was at 15 years old playing for the inauguration of our governor. Oh man. I got the taste of that ability to exchange my talent for money. Yeah. Especially when I was on my own, I, I was all in. I'm sure. I continued to play at weddings and social events, both playing the violin and singing. 
Now, was this making up most of the money at this point? No, but in college, I started, I was really good and interested in graphic design and marketing and branding. And I had ads and bridal magazines, which really were effective back then because the internet was not up and rocking yet. Sure. And I was getting double and triple booked. And instead of turning them down, I would hire my violin professors and members of the symphony and, you know, people from my college orchestra. And I was basically running a business without really knowing it. To me, I wasn't, I was just not turning down opportunities that were coming to me. You're like a violinist broker. Yeah. So <laughs> I was out playing an event with my string quartet while two, three or four others were out playing their events and I was making money on all of their events. Amazing. That's amazing. So is that when you got sort of the first entrepreneurial bug? Like, hey, this is actually a business that I, that I can create. Yes. Yes. And I think that my situation, my predicament um, made me look at anything that I was potentially good at or, mm-hmm. or a little, you know, pretty good at, I would monetize. Yeah. So I was a lettering artist. I started doing people's wedding invitations and, you know, the biggest gigs I got were um, to design stuff for, or letter things for um, an ad agency. Mm-hmm. And almost everything that I'm good at, I end up turning into a business and it's almost like I can't help myself. Yeah. Even today, like I wrote this book, I wrote it. I took a deep dive into publishing paths, into marketing. And, you know, that was four full years of like, just heads down, asking questions, grilling people, grilling publishers, grilling agents, like really figuring out what, what the the world is in publishing right now, figuring out my own path. And now what am I going to do? I'm going to teach other people how to write their own story and memoir, figure out what the publishing path is for them that would be most beneficial and also how to market it to a bestseller. And I don't mean just Amazon bestseller. If you can't figure out how to make your book a bestseller on Amazon, then you're just lazy. You're right. <laughs> right? So, yeah. So that is like pure serial entrepreneur where everything you've done, you figured out how to make money from it. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs do is they have a quote unquote business where they're doing work, but not actually getting paid, you know, which is cool on the one hand, but Hey, you actually need to make a living at some point. So that's really interesting that you've been able to do that throughout your entire life. Yes. And I don't know, you know, there's no way we're going to ever find out. Is it nature or nurture? Mm -hmm. Is it something I was born with intuitively or is it something that I had to grow into to survive? Yeah. It's a question that I don't even bother to think about. There's no way to know. Well, as as I was doing some research for our conversation today, I came across your website and one word really, I think on your website kind of embodies you and your experience. And it's really coming through even more now that we're talking is grit. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, you've had every opportunity to just like kind of pack it in, but you keep grinding it. And and that grit really has sort of sharpened you into the person that you are, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Listen, it's my drug and my addiction is having an idea and being able to create a life of its own around it. Mm-hmm. It is intoxicating and it's so much fun. Yeah. And I personally, as a human being, don't enjoy necessarily some of the things that other people enjoy. And I find myself rubbing up against that, like, oh, I wish 
I wanted to go out and party or I wish I don't even know what it feels like to say, Oh, I need a cocktail. Like I hear people saying that, but I don't understand it. Yeah. I don't like going on vacation. I love my life here. Yeah. So, you know, it's just the way you look at it. I should just be happy that I'm here in my space and happy, but I just got back from a two week vacation in Italy, which was phenomenal. I was with my 26 year old daughter, Bennett, but also the whole time I just wanted to be home. Right. I don't think people feel that way in general. No, I think you're right. Well, and it, you know, you talk about how you're able to help people and you can teach people how to really enjoy a, their work life and be their regular life. Right. And I think if you would ask a lot of the people that you talk to and you said, Hey, I can teach you how to take a two week vacation to Italy. They'd say, Oh my God, please whatever it takes. Let me get there. And you're like, yeah, cool. But I was, I'd rather be home. So how are you able to, to, to help people sort of figure out what they really love to do and, and help them create a better life? I, I've taken these stances, so I'm not really a life coach or a, I, I, I do what I can, what I really know how to do. And that is yeah. one, I like to teach, help entrepreneurs scale and grow their companies by 50% or more. For me, the first 12 years of my business were Um, It was just a lifestyle business. And then I scaled and grew it and really know a lot now about, you know, being on the Inc. 5000 list three times in a row, growing by 65% or more every year. So I can, I know how to help people do that. I know how to help people work on their business as a strategist and an advisor and a visionary. First of all, why it's important to write your own story and not necessarily only or first write a subject matter book yep. on something that you're really, you know, an expert at. There's so much noise out there in the business world, right? But I'm going to tell you right now my experience with writing this memoir, which is, you know, who knows how it was going to come out. There's sure. right. It's been incredible. And the responses I'm getting, the reviews I'm getting, the Facebook posts, the DMs are so deep and yeah. so interesting. I am actually impacting people's lives positively without telling them a prescriptive how to do, right? You don't have to get your pencil and paper out while you're reading or listening to the book. I think people will be inspired. And I didn't write the book as an inspirational, motivational book either. Right. So but- I think it's so important because people now they know me. Yeah. And I'm telling you how much they know me. They know if you read the book or listen to it, which I suggest you listen to it because it has incredible surprise in it. There's music woven through the entire audible version. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Of my music. And did you and read, did, were you, did you I read did. it? Okay. I voiced it. And it sounds great. Like I'm, yeah. you know, like I, it's hard to listen to audible books if the author isn't a good narrator or if they've hired another narrator that really yes. you can tell isn't attached to what they're reading. And they're they dry reading a script, basically. You can also hear that they don't understand what they're reading, which is always interesting. Definitely. But the point is to help people write their own story and help them get their message and experience out into the world. Because if you are a successful entrepreneur, you've already gone through at least one hero's journey story but probably many more. Right. Well, explain, right? explain what you mean by that. Cause I, I'm sort of thinking one of the things, so if you're teaching people how to write, you know, like a life story, mm-hmm. I would, my first gut is 
does anybody care about my life? Like my story might not be of interest to people. So t- tell me what, what you mean by yeah. you know having a, a hero story of you. Well, you have a successful business, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Let me. So yes. That's going to set you <laughs> apart already. Yeah. It's not going to necessarily set you apart from your entrepreneurial crowd. Right. right? Yeah. But people coming up. Yeah. It might, you know, impact. And there are, you know, there's things in my book that I never uh, talked about. I would say mm-hmm. never admitted, but never talked about with my best friend or my therapist. Wow. And there's, they're very vulnerable and raw things. Wow. I'm sure. That at now at 51, I feel confident that I can put that kind of thing out without being judged or without business saying, oh no, she wrote that. I'm not going to work with them anymore. Like I'm Mm -hmm. to the place. So I think that's really important, you know, to figure out when you're writing your own story, who your audience is, where you are on your own path, what you actually have to give to other people. And so if I can help somebody write their story, publish it and market it, and they have the outcome is the experience I'm getting. Yeah. I'm all in. Yeah. Well, I'd imagine, you know, talking about being as vulnerable as you are, there's, there had to be some, you know, a, a cathartic experience for, for going through and writing this whole thing. And to be able, it has to be such an amazing feeling that your story, while you didn't set out to, with the intention to inspire people is inspiring people. That has to be amazing. It's amazing. It is. So for me, it's much bigger than book sales then yeah. income from the book, from speaking, from things that kind of peel off from there. I read a review of someone. Um, I was, I had just gone through security and at SFO and I was waiting for my daughter, check my phone. And I read this um, Facebook message post from someone, a man in Colorado. I didn't know him. And he had three photos of the book underlined in very important places to him. And he wrote this just amazing overview and he wrote, this is the book I wish I had the courage to write. Wow. That's so now I'm like bawling (laughs) and my daughter comes up to me knowing that I'm like hesitant to travel. And she's like, "Uh, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. (laughs) That is really impacting people's lives. Yeah. (laughs) That's incredible though. That's, you know, to your point, that's way more than, uh, that's probably way stronger than any dollar figure that could could be. Mm -hmm. And here's the deal, Brian, this is the biggest surprise to me is how many men are reading it or listening to it and how many men are coming forward with their responses, their outcomes, but also their own challenges in life. Yes. I know that this book gives people a voice, Mm -hmm. you know, if they weren't able to express themselves to see someone like me, right. right? I'm all over the place, right. I'm on social media everywhere. I'm a pretty public person. And now people know things about me that are pretty taboo. Yeah. Right. It's not cocktail talk. Sure. Yeah. So that then informs them, oh, if she's doing that. I might be able to do that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, it's sort of the, uh, the pay it forward type of scenario where you're inspiring one person and that person inspires one person and so on and so forth. It's amazing. And again, Um, I didn't set out to do that, but I'm so thankful 
that is what's happening. Yeah, no, that that is amazing. And the one thing you talk a little bit about on your website, which I find fascinating, and it seems like this might be you know tied in with the book, is that you help work with people that sometimes get in what you call life sucking jobs. You know, and that's one of the things I see a lot just in you know my regular life where people are grinding out every day at a job they hate for a salary they need. And it's how are you able to, to try to help disconnect the two, uh, you know, the money side for, um, and hating your life to going to work every day? That has to be a really difficult thing for someone to do because I feel like they get kind of hooked on the, you know, the, they sort of end up being like a rat on a wheel, if you will. Yes. And for the most part, I can't overly generalize, but for the most part, that is a choice that they're making for themselves, probably out of fear. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was talking to another person last week about the fact that, you know, when you read my book or you talk to me about some of the choices I've made, I never refer to them as sacrifices, right? They're choices that I made that I'm very proud of. For instance, when I quit a full-time well-paying job to become a full-time musician and, you know, also that was kind of the impetus of entire productions, I moved from our three-bedroom craftsman house that was on the expensive side to rent. Yeah. And and I moved me and my young, young daughter to a one-bedroom garden apartment. I say garden. She says basement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the way I see things. Yeah, right. I could see the flowers and the plants. It's right. a garden apartment. We'll count it. Yeah. It was only slightly submerged into the ground. But anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the truth is people would say, oh, she's sacrificing a lot for her dreams. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a sacrifice. That was part right? of the. It was right. just right. And I was happy. Bennett's my daughter had her bunk bed over my bed and, uh Turns out that year I made enough money to have stayed in that bungalow, craftsman bungalow, but we stayed at that garden apartment for over a year and a half longer because I loved it. There was no need to to move. Yeah. Well, you you bring up an interesting point because I think a lot of times when an entrepreneur talks to the general public, the general public isn't comfortable with the risk. No. And they think what you're doing is crazy. And, you know, you have a lot of people, you know, know, when I decided to get into my career, my parents were like, you're insane. Why are you doing that? Like, that's an insane thing. Go get a job at a bank and, you know, just for, that doesn't seem to make sense. So it is an interesting thing to have people have that, that perspective of, hey, she's sacrificing all that. And you go, no, this is what I want to do. This is part of the deal, you know, because it doesn't fit their life narrative. And what they think is the right. right way to go. And honestly, as I look back on my life and the decisions I've made, I'm not sure I was willing to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I was willing to make a choice that was different than others. Yep. But I don't think I would have put myself in that um, uncomfortable position. Yeah. But again, it's just how you look at things. It's it, how you it frame is. them. It's all, it's all perspective and point of view. I totally agree with you there. Um, how so? You have a business. Obviously, you have multiple businesses, but your your sort of main business is an event planning company. Yes. And then COVID hits, and uh-huh. a, there are no events. So how does that how does that affect you? That threw me into a physically challenging panic attack. Mm-hmm. I had to lay off um, 
half of my team and I did it earlier than people around me. And I felt horrible. Yeah. But a couple of weeks after I did it, 80% of our industry was laid off or furloughed. So I actually made a good business decision. Right. Tough one. Yeah. It was not cool for the psyche. It was not good. (laughs) Right. But I came up with an idea to um, continue events with our clients who were, you know, moving to virtual. Mm-hmm. And I was so excited about it that I created this whole deck before I even presented it to my team. We had no proof of concept. We had no way to show people what it was like that moment. I actually also called up the CEO of Mansueto Ventures, uh-huh. which runs Inc. Magazine and Fast Company. And I pitched this to him. I mean, I was like, I was. I was relentless. Yeah. <laughs> and it, I, it, you know, it, we ended up saving the company, creating 200, over 200 virtual events. Wow. That were, had faster paced, shorter segments of information with entertainment and in, interactivity and um, with like connectors of uh, different things. It was so exciting and so fun. Yeah, I bet. But it took, you know, it, it took a couple of weeks. Yeah. I think I felt sorry for myself for a minute. And then I also thought, oh my God, I'm going to be homeless and sleeping in the doorway uh, downstairs of my building. Mm-hmm. It was just a knee jerk, uh, you know, PTSD response. Right. But- because I, at that moment, I forgot about all the skills and the experience that I had. Yeah. And then you put that to the side and here comes the pivot and you're able to, to pull it off. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yes. Um, th- that COVID, I feel like the COVID experience made things really horrible for a lot of companies in the short and depending on your industry and the long term. Mm-hmm. But I do think it really taught a lot of valuable lessons. And if you had to sort of pick one of the most valuable lessons, what would you say you, is the most valuable lesson you learned from the COVID experience? Well, it gave me a moment to step back from the firehose of business that had been coming into our, our company for years. Yes. And I looked at my spending, right? I cut my overhead in more than half. Mm-hmm. And we're operating today with that similar, right? Yep. So there was so much money coming in and so much going out. It didn't really matter because, you know. So that was a great lesson is to, to tighten things up. And I, and I was quite conservative with spending to, to begin with. Right. So that was, you know, it gave me time to clean up mm-hmm. internally. Yep. Systems, processes, people, expenditures. Get efficient. Really look at, do I need that subscription? Yep. So for instance, we were using Cirrus Insight. Is that what it's called? It, it's a, it's a plugin at, uh, for Salesforce. And as it turns out, I don't know how much it was. It was, it was quite expensive, maybe six to $12,000 a year. And we've been operating without it just fine. Of course. The last three years. Amazing how that happens. That's great. So we're almost out of time. So I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. You ready? Yes. If you could go back in the beginning of your career and give yourself some advice based off of your frame of reference from today, what would that be? 
find the courses that I took, like the Goldman Sachs 10 KSB yeah. entrepreneurial master's class at MIT or Harvard doesn't even have to be those big names, but do the work. That is the shortcut. People listen to this, do the work. It's the <laughs> shortcut. I spent 12 years winging it. I love that. Why? Doing the work is the short. I'm actually writing that down. Yes. Doing the work is the shortcut. That's great. Um, if you had to help another female entrepreneur uh, that's considering starting a business, hmm. what advice would you give to them, to her? Similar is make sure that you have a mentor and advisor or more than one of each. Mm -hmm. And listen, there's access to that information that I'm telling you about in blogs and YouTube videos in courses that you can pay for. Lay your foundation firm when you're starting a business. Yeah, that's Don't great. Don't do what I did. And wing it. <laughs> why bother? Yeah. Why would you do that to yourself? You bring up an interesting question about the mentor. So yeah, uh, yeah I would assume you've had at least one, possibly more mentors. Is there one person that sticks out that's a, that, that you can point to and say, my life would not be what it is today if I didn't know this person? Yes. And you know what? I didn't have, I was so proud and I wanted to do this all behind the um, veil of I'm so amazing, right. but I didn't reach out to tell people I didn't know mm -hmm. what I needed to know. Yeah. I was too proud. So I would say in 2015, I had an HR advisor. Her name is Cindy. And I had um, a business advisor named Tim. And without the two of them, uh, I don't know if I would be where I am today. You know, it's one of the things that's really come up a lot on uh, on these interviews that I've done with business owners is that they really noticed a ton of growth once they kind of put their ego, checked their ego to the side and go and said, hey, I don't know how to do this stuff. I'm going to put my hand up and say, someone help yeah. me. Yeah, that's great. All right. Last question. Yes. Hardest question I'm going to ask you. Okay. You were a wedding singer. <laughs> What's your least favorite song to sing at a wedding? I can show you the world, <laughs> a that, whole new world. That's yeah. Aladdin. Is that, that the Aladdin I, song? I don't know, but yeah. That, <laughs> All right. Well, flip side, what's your favorite song that you enjoy um, singing the most? Gosh, it was so long ago that I was singing at weddings, but cool, quirky songs that had to do with what the couple's you know, life was. I remember this wasn't singing, but at the end, uh, the recessional, we played the theme from Peanuts. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. I love yeah. it. So, well, this is awesome. I, I really enjoyed uh, talking to you about your whole background is so inspiring. So that's amazing. So if people want to learn a little bit more about you and your business, where do they go? You can go to my personal website, which is officialnatashamiller.com. And it will point you into the various directions that you might find yourself wanting to peek at. And they can buy your book where, uh, wherever books are sold Every, and audible. Yeah. Audible. I would really highly recommend listening to it. I'm going to listen to it. Why cheat yourself out yeah. of the multidisciplinary experience? Well, you have a trained, uh, professional entertainer reading yeah. their book with music. So that's exciting. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd love to hear what you thought of it, Brian. Well, I will definitely do that. Thank you very much. So if you want to connect with me on the Untapped app, so you can see how I rate these beers that we drink during the show, my username is brcarney7. To learn more about how my firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half.com. 
half-hour.com. Moment of truth for other half brewing, all green, everything, pretty strong beer, 10 and a half percent. I would definitely drink it again, but only one of them. I'm going to give this a 3.75 out of five rating for that. Natasha, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And make sure you go pick up Relentless. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC. 